folks, not sure why our drops are not working today. Let's get to the last story for our panel here. A Philadelphia man has been freed from prison after 37 years in a case tarnished by detectives who allegedly offered a witness sex and drugs at police headquarters in exchange for false testimony. The trial witness was charged with perjury days after Willie Stokes was convicted of murder in 1984. But Stokes was never told of that perjury plea until 2015 while serving a life sentence. A federal judge has called the violation of his constitutional rights egregious. Both detectives uh, uh, in question, they're now deceased. The question what happens to Willie Stokes, th th this is one of those things where, um, I, I, you know, it's like, <laughs> how do you compensate, compensate someone 37 years what the detectives did, th this is uh, just unbelievable. Yeah, and there's no fix. There is no fix for it. There's no amount of money in the world that can compensate for a life. Um, whether someone is falsely imprisoned for a day or for 100 days or for 37 years, there really is no way to compensate someone for time during which they lost their liberty unjustly. So we have figured out calculations for those things. Certain cities have it where it's a certain amount of, of dollars per day that they use as a calculus when there is a false arrest and false imprisonment. But it, it does not compensate properly. And that's, of course, the same thing when you're getting a wrongful death verdict. I don't care how many millions you give a mama. There is no way that that compensates for the loss of a child. So this is this is a tragedy and a travesty. Uh, the story here from NPR, uh, this is what it says, uh, Robert. One surviving prosecutor, now in private practice, did not immediately return messages seeking comment Tuesday. However, he has given a statement saying he doesn't remember either case. How convenient, folks. Uh, and just as Monique said, there really is no solution to this. And I think we have to start going to our state legislatures and, uh, and kind of pushing them to create a statutory solution for these sorts of things. Uh, when you think about it, there really should be a statutory right of action because right now it really just comes down to what the family will accept. Let's just start saying that, look, if we falsely imprison you for your entire life, then we will have uncapped damages that you can sue the state for. I bet you they get a whole lot more careful on these prosecutions when they start renaming streets after your son and daughter that you have to give city hall over uh, to the family of the victim. Maybe that will give people the message of what we're talking about when we're discussing criminal justice reform. Not just let people shot by cops, but it's a systemically broken system from the bottom to the top, from the time you have your first encounter with police until appeal. There are flaws in the system all the way through. And until we start giving people the private right of action to go after the, the system itself, there'll be no way to actually get the reforms we need. We have seen court systems be recalcitrant to change. We've seen uh, legislatures be recalcitrant to, to change. The minute you start talking about uh, not arresting low-level offenders, you get the police unions and everybody else come marching and protesting, saying you're soft on crime. We have to change the laws which underpin these things and give people more rights so they can fight back against a system that is fighting against them. Scott, but this is what's so crazy. Go back to my iPad. This is the NPR story. The homicide prosecutor that used Franklin Lee's testimony to convict Willie Stokes then prosecuted Franklin Lee for lying on Willie Stokes, and they never 
told he's really stoked. Those are lawyers who should never, ever practice again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And prosecutors are held to a higher standard, and they didn't tell the defense lawyer who was really stoked, and no one told him. And so 40 years ago, over the course of 37 years, he just languished in jail. Hold on, hold on, I got, hold on Scott, I got one better for you. Lee, Lee was in jail on, on rape and robbery charges. He served 35 years and got out two years ago. <laughs> Unbelievable. He Unbelievable. got out. The dude who lied to, say, to get a lighter sentence has been free for two years, and the dude he lied on was still in prison. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. Now, having handled a couple of these cases, there is a statutory right to recover after 37 years for most of these, for a lot of these cases. Depending upon the state law. Huh? Depending upon the state law. No, there's, there's, there may be a statutory right, but the limitations, even if you give me the right, there are limitations different state by state in regard to what you can recover for being wrongfully convicted. Secondly, you listen to us, please understand this, that the prosecutor and the judges involved can outright malfeasance, right, are protected by, uh, by the... Uh, uh, by immunity, if you will, whether it's statutory immunity, limited immunity, or full immunity, uh, and are barred from being prosecuted or even taking their deposition, let alone them being charged or sued civilly, whether it's under 1983 or whether it's on a state uh, statute. And so not only is he free, but now to recover money, he's got to challenge a system that is embedded in protecting bad actors called the judges and the prosecutors. And it's hard to get around, because even if you successfully change the law, the government is going to appeal it. They're saying, this is a problem, and we're not proud of this conduct, but obviously we've got to protect our taxpayer dollars. And so they will go to the Supreme Court to appeal it, state as well as otherwise, and they still, you'll be litigating for 10, 20, 30 years, and you still may not win, which is why most defendants who have been released, they settle for something because they don't want to be tied up in litigation for years. Again, he's 61 years old, uh, and it's amazing how these they, folks... He, he ain't got 20 years of litigation. It's amazing how these folks have no problem at all paying out uh, multi-million dollar police settlements uh, when cops shoot folks, but then they don't want to pay somebody who served time in prison yeah. uh, who was wrongfully convicted because of mm-hmm. police and because of prosecutors. Uh, it's outrageous. Uh, right. Absolutely. All right, folks. Uh, Tao, thank you so very much. Got a few more headlines to read before we go to our Richard Lawson interview. Uh, thanks to Rod Scott, Robert, and Monique. The oldest known World War II veteran folks died this morning. 112-year-old Lawrence Brooks was a member of the Army's Majority African-American 91st Engineer Battalion. He served in Australia, New Guinea, and the Philippines during his military career. Brooks was born in 1909 in Louisiana and raised in Mississippi. He's survived by five children, 13 grandchildren, and 32 grandchildren. Basketball Hall of Famer Sam Jones passed away at the age of 88 last week. Jones won 10 NBA titles with the Boston Celtics in his 12-year career, second only to teammate Bill Russell. The Celtics spokesman says Jones died Thursday in Florida where he had been hospitalized in failing health. He was a North Carolina native who played for Hall of Fame coach John McLandon at North Carolina Central. Celtics general manager Red Arbach selected him eighth overall in the 1957 draft despite never seeing him play. Sam Jones was 88 years old. R.B. singer Jesse Lee Daniels has passed away at the age of 57. He rose to fame as a member of the Force MDs. A 
popular R&B vocal group formed in Staten Island, New York in 1981. The group had six studio albums together, and their last release was in 2000. The musician's management team confirmed the news, and the band paid tribute to him on Facebook. All right, folks, right here uh, on Black Star Network, we, of course, uh, have uh, we launched a new show called Rolling with Rolling, which is a one-on-one interview uh, show with a variety of folks. Uh, and uh, we kicked this uh, thing off with Johnny Gill. Uh, we wanted to now uh, show you the second interview, actor Richard Lawson. You've seen him in numerous movies and TV shows, which you may not know. Richard Lawson almost died in a plane crash uh, taken off years ago from LaGuardia, where a number of people were killed. He t- talks about what took place and how he just did not listen to his intuition not to get on that airplane. Also, in the interview, he, uh, he, be- he became a soap opera star. Uh, but guess what? He, ha- he didn't want to be on soap operas. Earlier in his career, his agent suggested he do a soap opera. He fired the agent, saying, how dare you? He then went on to huge soap opera fame. Still, you good-looking brother with all his hair. Truth is still swooning over Richard Lawson. He's 74 years old. Here's my one-on-one conversation with actor Richard Lawson. Oakland, uh, Oakland, and uh, L.A. No, they're they're Indian 
blacks and Indians together. There's some black and Indian people there. But Creole people nah. kind of stop at Buford. They said, look, we either going to stay here or we're going to make it out of this California. That's right. That's so, right. Uh, so, so, so your folks are from there. Where in Louisiana? Lafayette and right outside of Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, outside Bridge, Dusson. And so all of my people, my great-grandfather bought himself out of slavery. Really? And then bought his brothers and sisters out of slavery. And, and they settled in Dusson, Louisiana, and became large landowners. They bought property and became farmers and really took the whole level of, uh, of sharecropping to a whole other level, mm. where, you know, the concept of one man taking a 1,000 pounds of cotton to the gin, he's going to get X. But if you can put together a consortium of 100 people who take a 1,000 pounds of cotton to the gin, they're going to get X to the 10th power. And so he what galvanized people and created societies and built schools and all kind of things. What was his name? His name was Alcide Wilturner. And then my grandmother married a Broussard. And so... Got a whole bunch of Broussard in my family, too. We got Broussard, well, you know... Broussard, Mouton, Malvo, Robichaud, all of them, all of those. All of them both. All of them both. All of them both. All of Yeah, Trey Hands. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. See, my, see, my, my, my first Lamont. Okay. So it's L-E-M-O-N-D. Okay. Uh, and then, now some changed the name to Lemon. So I have an uncle who was Earl Lemon. Right. But his brother was, who was my grandfather, yeah. Clarence Lamont. Right. And so they just dropped the D. Right. So I was like, right. okay. Yeah, there was a lot of that going on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the plays that started me in the business was No Place to Be Somebody. And it was um, uh, Charles Gordon. Well, Gordon or Gordon. Right. You know, we're going to change some shit. You know, or they're going to change it. Or, or they don't want to pronounce our name. That's, that's true. That's true. That's true. There's a lot of that. You know, Houston or Houston. Right. You know, Rodeo or Rodeo.
one year, um, and then I had like a dinner at the Beverly Hills, and then about 30 people showed up. And then the next year, we did it. So I was like, I want to host it at my house. And so we, we just grew and grew. Mm-hmm. And folks were like, well, man, when you coming back? I said, y'all from here. Y'all live here. Right. Why y'all can't call each other? Yeah. Oh, man, when you the connect, I said, no. I said, no. I said, why do you need a reason right. to get together? And that's really born out of coming out of a he family yeah. where it was just pop up get togethers and next thing you know like i say it'd be a weekday school night and it's 30 40 50 people at the house and we right. cooking and playing music and just and just having a good time right well you know usually there's some or hopefully there's somebody in the family that has that consciousness of fellowshipping people in the family you know like in louisiana you know it's 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 a very friendly kind of environment and food is a very important part right. of that in terms of getting together. My grandmother would cook and she cooked this big meal and she would sit there and watch you eat it. Really? Because she enjoyed right. I mean that was your reaction. Your reaction yeah. because food is the language. Yeah. You know, and the way that it's prepared and the love that's prepared and the and the satisfaction that people get from 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 eating it, you know what I mean? It's like and then and then people bringing whatever their specialties are. It's a language and it's a way to bond people. I love cultures that that make food and fellowship a very important right. part of the exchange. Well, that's why the phrase some people uh, to live, some live to eat. Right. Oh, I interviewed uh, Leah Chase, uh, and she said, "Okay, I'm gonna fix you something." I said, "Well, no." I said, I, "I'm on a diet." She said, "Oh," she said. Oh no, uh-uh. She said, "You got." She said, "We believe in the broad shoulders." She, she said, "And the belly over the belt." She said, "No." She all she had be cracking up laughing. But 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 you're right. That that is. A, I mean, it's, it's 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 amazing to me when when I come here again, folks. Uh, I never forget uh, a good partner, Lionel Richie. Man, this is great. He said, "I've been knowing Bernie White for 35 years." This is the longest conversation we had. Because remember, we passed each other backstage or whatever. Right. And right. it was just folks just hanging. That was no agenda. Right. I said, ain't no dress code. Yeah. There are no rules. Yeah. I said, if you can make it, great. Right. If you can't, that's fine. Yeah. But it's just, it's just getting together and what well, you said, it, fellowship. Right. Right. You know, it's so interesting because uh, we have a friend in New York, um, Lorraine Schwartz, who's a jeweler. She's a jeweler for everybody, but. Um, and she's Jewish, and on Friday night, they have Shabbat. And so we went to Shabbat one night, and, you know, there was probably about 15 people there, but it was so much fun because they can't go out, so they bring people in. There you go. And I said, you know, what I love about that is that it brings people that you love together. So uh, Tina and I are talking about doing Shabbat. <laughs> <laughs> Shabbat on Sunday, uh-huh. doing a Sunday thing, and we invite our family over because you know when you consider all of the people that are family and extended family, right. we have a good number of people. But but that's what Sunday dinner was. That's what Sunday it was. was. And, it, and again, and everybody and knew it was something where right, everybody right. was. Yeah. And so no matter what you were doing, right. you knew, yo, so and so house, yeah. they having dinner. You could stop by. Right. But it was something. Right. Because in the evening in the South, you know, dinner is earlier. Supper is the, is the, is the evening meal. 
We had we had all day. <laughs> My grandmother had a catering business, so oh. we would go to the Catholic church. Uh, where I grew up in was founded in my grandparents' living room. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, and so we would go to 10 o'clock service. Wow. We lived eight blocks away. Yeah. Everybody knew we met at Mother and Papa's house after church. Right. So by 1 p.m., yeah. yo, it's cooking going on. Right. And we there until 11. Right. Okay. So it, it was, it was, so it's the funniest part, Richard, is no lie. I can't cook for two people. Mm. You can't. So you cook for every cook. Sunday. It was 60, 80 people. God. My, my, gra- my grandparents Man. had eight kids. In one house? And this was not, this was not this house. Right. Bruh, they had eight kids who had 42 grandkids. Ooh. Bruh, that, so, the night, so you talk about eight kids, spouses, 16. Right. 42 grandkids. Yeah. Bruh, grandparents. <laughs> That's every. Man, we would we would do softball games. That's every Sunday. That how I don't know how we fit in that house. This is in Louisiana. No, that's in Houston. Oh, in Houston. Right. I saw how my grandfather could could feed all them people uh, with two chickens in, uh, in a gumbo. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody had a piece of meat in that bowl. Everybody had a piece of meat. You had a piece. You had a piece of meat and sausage and shrimp in that bowl. Right. And you may not have two or three. But you gonna have some in that bowl. Right. But the but the but the but, but that was. Listen, we had. I had so many family members die. Seriously, my aunt just died. Two of my aunts just died, and I was reflecting on it. I never spent the night at a non-family member's house. Growing up, with no room for friends. Well, let me think about it. I had four, I had forty plus cousins. <laughs> but you know the beauty of that, and that's one of the things that is missing today, was the fact that. Part of your education came from the generations mm-hmm. in your family. You know, your like the grandparents. Mm-hmm. Important. Because that's where you learn stories of the past. That's where you learn stories of where you came from. Your great-grandparents. And, and, and that's where your greatest values came yep. from. Your grandparents. Because parents are learning how to be parents. Yep. Grandparents already, they've been there, done that. And so they have the patience. So we have, and we were, and here's the deal. There was no adults in this room and kids in that room. Right. No. Right. Same room. Same room. So part of the reason folks were like, man, what you, that was you debate on TV? I said, uh-uh. If you had to get through the family debate, right. I said, that's stuff I do on TV. <laughs> because those were debates. Because see, here was the deal. Right. We, if, you were, if you were young, if you want to jump your ass in that conversation, Right. They'll let you jump in. Right. But you would not treat like a child. Right. You had to hold your own. Right. So right. if you just try to open your mouth, right. they were like, okay, you can bring your ass in here. Right. But you might get sent out with your butt kicked. Right. So you better have your stuff. So growing up, seeing that right. seeing arguments and the back and the forth, right. that, that was practice. That was practice. <laughs> and, and that's where you learned to develop a point of view. Because you, you had to you had to have an opinion and you had to hold your opinion and you had to defend it and you had to defend it because yeah. it was vicious. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I saw my grandfather, aunts, and uncles, and I was like, damn. Yeah. I'm sitting there going like, man, these dudes making a good point. That ain't gonna hold up. They yeah. might eat that one alive. <laughs> they gonna eat it up. They eat that one alive. Yeah. But but that that to me, a man, that was to me a family. <laughs>
that you're not alone because other people deal with bullying, self, you know, self-image, uh, depression, COVID, parents, you know, school, etc. All the issues, you know, uh, pregnancy, all that kind of stuff. Uh, making wonderful films. So Tina and I have a natural pro- proclivity to care for other people and help, you know. And at this stage in our life, it's perfect because I'm 74 and she's 67. We don't have no problems talking about our age because we try to take care of ourselves, you know. Um, and uh, and so the whole the real whole point is is you can't keep it unless you give it away, right? And that's what we do. And we get we great joy. We have great joy in doing that. The the gala is a huge event. You came, right? I bet you've never been to the gala. I bet. Oh man. People are calling it the Met of the West mm-hmm. because it's a, it, it's it's a you know it's a uh, it's a wearable art good. But see, I'm glad they're not calling it the Black Met. No, see, no, no, no. it's like you know Josh Gibson. That's a Black Babe Ruth. No, that's no. Josh Gibson. That's Josh, Josh Gibson. Right. There's other people are calling it that. Right. They can call what they want to call. Right. Our point is to bring people together, um, you know, and one of the things that helped to influence and sort of set the tone was we took 10 kids to Africa two years ago, and it was sort of like, you know, the year of the return. Mm -hmm. So it was commemorating 400 years of slavery off of the Ghanaian western coast of Africa. We took 10 kids over there. And it was really the experience of their lives, and it was a it was a grounding force for me, because when I was standing in the dungeon, those slave dungeons, and I had just done um, uh, 23 and Me, and I'm I'm 20% Ghanaian and 30% Nigerian, so 50% of me is African heritage. So standing in those dungeons, I uh, the reality of the fact that I'm standing on my own DNA. Right. Some of my people came through here with spies. And, and and when I looked at my great-grandfather and I looked at my mother and I looked at all the people in my family and I looked at the resilience they had, it really connected the, me with my African heritage in terms of here I stand today standing on those shoulders. So what my, one of my desires is, and one of the things that we do, is the evolution of African culture through in the Western societies. We start there, and we're also going to look at how African culture travels east through Japan and China. But one of the things in terms of helping African Americans understand and appreciate where we came from, what we are connected to, the strength of our history, the strength of our present, and looking at these young people today and what's going on politically, that, you know, um, uh, it's so funny. I just heard this song the other day that I'm looking to put it in, you know, and I, I don't remember it word for word. It was like, look at this plane lighting up the sky. There's something, something, something flying up so high. It looks to me like them niggas ain't playing. Them niggas ain't playing. Them niggas ain't playing. Looking at the fact that we ain't playing. It's serious today. And we ain't going back to where we came from. We 
can only go forward. And we can only go forward if we understand as a people where we came from and the beauty of our past. And so I'm trying to connect that beauty through what we share with our kids and also what we create in art. I'm in the process of, uh, of directing a play on film that's never been done like this before, where there's a play called Black Terror that Richard Wesley wrote, and this is the 50-year the 50 anniversary. And it, it's a, about the revolution, and uh, it was done at the Public Theater uh, in New York. Joe Papp produced it. Uh, it had a great run then, and it's just time for us to kind of take a look at the concept of what it takes in order to make things change. And so uh, we're doing this as a co-production deal with uh, Newark Symphony Theater. So between the two of us, I'm directing it and receiving it. Um, in November, I'll send you a, a link to, to check it out. Where did the action start? Where did, how, where, how did, where did that come from? Was, was it a family member? Did you meet somebody? Or were you always just showing out in front of the family and decided to get paid for it? None of that. None of that. It was so weird. Um, my mother worked 16 hours a day for 16 years as a nurse, a bedpan person. And she just wanted me to find something that I loved and, and do that. And so, um, you know, I... I went to school, I played football, I dropped out to go into business. I was gonna go into business right quick, a furniture moving business with my cousin. We did, we were pumping, man. Government found out that I had dropped out of school, went in the army, got drafted, went in the army, went to Vietnam, um, spent my year in Vietnam, and during the Tet Offensive, I was a combat medic. I saw things that was really, I'm so grateful for because it really has helped me to appreciate life on a whole nother level. Um, I got out of school three months early. I went to a junior college because that's the only place I can get in real quickly. And I said, you know what, man, I'm going to be a lawyer. And so I said, but this is junior college. I'm going to go join the debate team because lawyers debate. I was, in the, <laughs> I, was in, I was in that department, and this woman came into the room where I was sitting and said, whose voice is that? What you doing at 3.30 today? I said, uh, uh, she said, good. Come to room 708. I went to room 708. She was doing Reader's Theater at Antigone. So all she heard is your voice. She just heard my voice. She walked down the hall into this room because she heard my voice. And she pulled me in. Y'all were debating or you just talking? We're just talking. I'm talking to the people in the debate department. She ain't even, she's not in the debate department. She was in the she was in the English department, and she was trying to find somebody to do the, a, a, a stage reading of Antigone. And she hears this voice and says, it. "Yeah, I want that voice. I want that voice." And so I did it, you know. And uh, and when I did it, we did a reading for a, a bunch of people in the auditorium, and people responded. It was like, "Yo, okay, all right." Then she corralled me into. Uh, Forensics, which is competitional speech, and then I became the state champion, undefeated. And then the drama coach—he ain't bragging. 
fear, whatever, the negativity. And then there's another voice that comes in, and I call that K-Art, another radio station that comes in. And on that station is are the voices of the positive people, of the things that said you can do this, pick your ass up, don't give up, come on, you got this. That kicks in and, uh, and basically guides you through. But you have to be present. starts, go around the first turn, we're in the middle of the back stretch, ruffian breaks down. They have to euthanize the horse on the track. Mm -hmm. Now, how you tell somebody that? Right. How you tell somebody that's where they think, oh, this boy's a little touch, <laughs> a little crazy. But that kind of thing comes to me. And it's yes. Many, many times. And it came to me that day about my own career. And it came to me about the plane crash. Because I knew that plane was going to crash. Before it happened. Before it happened. So the whole process, when I was about to get on the plane, I had that. It hit you. It hit me. Clear. 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 And it, I It hit you clear before you, and, 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 and what you didn't do was, you didn't listen to it. I didn't listen to it. You were saying, I got to get to Cleveland. I got this thing I got to do. And it was telling you, Richard, do not on this plane. Get off the plane. Get off the plane. 
And the other voice comes and says, oh, sit your ass down. What's wrong with you? What you going to tell, what you going to tell David Stern, who's, because I was working, I was running the drug program for the National Basketball Association. Mm -hmm. So I was on my way to Cleveland to meet with the Cavaliers. I mean, meet with the Cavaliers. It was so funny. I went to this event the other night. Uh, you know the pumps, Dana Pumps? Mm -hmm. They had this, they have a thing where they raise money, right? Right. And Isaiah Thomas was, uh, was there. And, and we have a very fond relationship because he knows the work that I did. And he said, man, I tell people all the time, the drug program today is because of you. You did that. You ran that program, and then that's why it's still successful today. So I was on my way to Cleveland, and um, so I'm battling. What you going to tell people? You can't tell people that you are afraid to fly. Right. David Stern is going right. to say, well, maybe you should find another line of work. Right, right. You know, so I battle, battle to get off this plane. Right up to the very end, where we're getting ready to take off, the lights came on, and that snow was blowing sideways, and it was like, stand up. Just stand up. They have to stop the plane and turn around if you just stand up. And I froze, and the plane started going down the runway. Man, it's going too slow. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And the plane took off, and it just rolled immediately to the side. I said, see? And then... I saw this big flash of orange on the buildings over there. It had struck something, and then it went to flames, and then it tumbled and wound up in the bay, in Flushing Bay. So, and then there was the whole reality of where I, what was going on in my head when I was underneath and, and accepting death because I couldn't move. I was in the first row. Oh, here's another thing, is that I first sat in so ironic because just on my phone, I can show you a text from the girls who just, I switched seats with me because I was in seat 6A. The brother recognized me, uh, 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 the ticket agent recognized me and said, man, you want to move up to first class? I said, yeah, because they didn't pay for first class unless you flew over three hours, right? So I said, yeah. He came, he came back and said, nah, you know. It's full. And I said, no, it's cool. Just before the plane, he closed the door. He came and said, wave me up to 1F. These two girls sitting in five said, hey, can we take your seat? Because he blocked out 6B mm -hmm. just so I wouldn't have to sit next right. to this crying baby. Right. <laughs> so they took five and 6A and 6B. Um, um. The one girl who sat in 6A first said, uncomfortable, can I switch seats? They switched seats. The friend that sat in 6A died. And the woman in 6B lived. She had burns, and she lived. But, the, but this girl here got the brunt of those flames because what I saw out the window was that wing hit a weather tower and then that the jet fuel exploded. So, um, but I knew. I knew. Now, what does it do for me today? It is in terms of, listen, mm -hmm. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, genius is 
following your first impressions with good-humored inflexibility, even when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Because that's what affects us is the other side. Right, right. People's opinion. What are they going to say? What are, what are they going to think? What do they say about it? <laughs> sitting there, Richard, and all the, literally, it was like a chair like this here, and all of a sudden, pain from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet hit me. I can't move. I'm like, because you, you and me, same thing, you used to die what's going on, but the die what's going on, and this, and this is exactly what I hear. Same thing. And I'm like, why do I need to do this? I need to do this. So I, I, I'm talking about I could barely, I mean, I'm literally, it, it was like two people who had to pull me up. That's how I'm getting, I get up. Guys, I got to go. I'm, it's, it's like a death march to the door. I'm yeah. like one foot. Yeah. Going down the hallway, get to the get to the elevator, go down the stairs. It's following me the whole time. Valet, get in the car. Pain, just just cause, just like I'm talking about my entire body. The entire, I'm literally driving. Like, what the hell's going on? Like, what? I'm praying. Cause I, I'm I'm thinking, am I having a stroke? Am I having a heart attack? What's going? Right. It drive my hotel. Go into my hotel room. Voices. Open your Bible. Now, mind you, I'm born and raised Catholic. You ain't raised to know no scripture when you're Catholic. No. They, we got the misalette. We got the readings for you. Yeah. You ain't. So it's not like. When we came up, it was in a language we couldn't even understand. Right. So it's like you just. You, I literally open the Bible. Not even. I'm not thumbing. Mm. I just open it. It's not there. It's not on a page. And it goes right to Psalm one, Psalm one one. The godly do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Then the word says, "That's why I needed you." Why? Because I could not have you in the presence of those two individuals is what it is they are trying to do. Yeah. Go, leave. I'm like. Next day, yeah. I'm talking about we good. We got me. We spill. We had we had lunch. Yeah. We had lunch. Yeah. Four of us, and a woman at lunch brings up the name of one of the two in the room. <laughs> Came right back. Wow. Like I'm talking about, it 
Then the voice says, I need you to go tell, you know, the following. And I was supposed to go to New Orleans that weekend for a mentoring program. And the voice says, this pain will remain with you until you go talk to him. Mm-hmm. Man, I call, say, man, where are you? Mm-hmm. I need to come to see you. What, what time can we meet? Mm-hmm. But that's, but again, that's, that's, that's that. So you can either listen yeah. or you can ignore it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's all energy. Um, Einstein says that everything is energy. Um, if you vibrate on the same wavelength, wavelength as the thing you want, nothing, it, only that can happen. It's not, it's not philosophy, it's physics. It's like love. You meet somebody and, and you're vibrating on the same wavelength, fall in love. Now, love, of course, is in relationship to uh, context. You know, you, you meet somebody and there's a general, genuine thing. Right. Versus when you meet somebody and it's a discordant energy and the wavelength is not in harmony, it's a discord. And, and the ability to be able to feel chord versus the discord mm-hmm. is where we have to be able to be sensitive to know there's something not right. Oh, there, I, I, was, I was talking to this one sister we were talking about. Uh, I said this to her and she thought I was crazy. I said, oh, she's, are we talking about folks in your life in your entertainment? I said, oh, there are a lot. I said, there are people who I've met in the entertainment business who have brought up one of their cell phone numbers. She went, but, but, but you're a journalist. I mean, I said, no. I said, there are people who I come across who I meet professionally, and it might be on a red carpet or whatever. I said, but I don't want to stay in contact with them. Right. Right. I said, there are others, because uh, we, we, we did this, and Jada Pinkett Smith, executive produced the Angela Davis documentary. We're in New York, doing a red carpet, and I'm waiting to interview her, and Will comes up. He said, before you interview me, he said, let me tell you about this guy. He'll just text you, man, how you doing? Your birthday, your father's day, whatever. And he said, just, and he doesn't want anything. I said, I said, I said and I was telling him, I said, that's the difference. There are some there are people you meet and you say, I can develop a relationship with them. Right. The others, no, uh, I've met you here, work, right. I see you, how you doing, right. but that's it. Yeah. And, that's to, and that's the case for a lot of folks don't want anything to do with them. Right, right. Because you don't want them in your space. No, you don't. You know, it's like, you, you know, babies, you got to pay attention to babies. You know, baby can, baby sees your aura. Mm-hmm. And if the energy is right, it's fun. They smile, they accept you, you can hold them, they come to you, they want to be in your space. They start animals, yelling and screaming. Animals, animals come around you, they, you know, but if animals don't like you, and babies, you can't hold them because they don't want no parts of you. You better pay attention. You know, because Why am I laughing? Because my oh, my oldest niece, I have 13 nieces and nephews. Why every time my 
when it was when it happened, I was like, that was just saying something. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. You know, we can get past whatever filters that we live in, you know, and just be open to receive and just to, you know, vibe. Um, we know when there's trouble. You know, somebody say, man, how can you fly? I'm the greatest flyer in the world because what I know today is that I have the ability to be able to perceive and feel something that's not right. So that boy says, listen, they film that plane. Yeah. You're going to say, what bus station? <laughs> Where the bus station? I was, on a, I was on a plane. I'm not going to mention the carrier, but got on this plane, man, these people were just wrong. The way they treated people, the way they greeted people, they were just wrong, you know, and I kept saying, you know, you guys can be nice to the people, you know, this is not very nice vibe you guys create here, it's like, y'all are entitled or something, or like, you know, you guys just not treat, you shouldn't treat people like this, and then she got real hanky with me, and I said, you know, ma'am, listen, I was in a plane crash, so I understand, you know, the dangers that we're in, and I, I spoke up enough so that people, oh, that's right, that's the guy from the, from the plane. And I said, you know what, I don't have a good vibe about this plane, I'm getting off. People start reaching. <laughs> we following him. <laughs> we go with him. <laughs> you let a mutiny off the plane. Yeah. I'm mutiny, right? But then I felt bad about that. I said, now you see, I'm using this the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> they all heard, uh, yeah, um, grab that bag. We, we follow Richard. Yeah, we follow Richard. We got to go. <laughs> see, so, Richard, you, you were talking about uh, how, how, people, how people respond. Talk about how, how it was being this absolute because Doc, growing, growing up, I swear black people need soap. Man, they say your name, and man, these sisters would lose their, their ever-loving mind. <laughs> come on, like, you know, come on, like, you, you know that was, it was like, they like, ooh, Lord, that Richard lost it. <laughs> you know? Hey, listen, you know, the one thing that was really amazing to me, I never... I never wanted to do a show. Not, my agent, one of my first agents came to me with me, you know, saying, um, well, I want you to go and audition for this. I don't even remember what soap it was. But by the fact that she suggested that I do a soap was so... I'll tell you how bad it was for me. I left her. Wow. If you don't have any higher sense of radiance for my career and what I want, especially after I done sat down with you and I gave you the picture of what I see for myself, which is what I teach people today. You know, in order for you to in order for you to get what you want, you gotta be able to see it. Visualize it. You gotta be able to visualize right. it, and then you gotta be able to see what actions you need to take in order to make that happen. This is, it's like any business, you know, like you, I love the concept of fat burgers. So there's this woman who started fat burgers right there on Western and Adams. Little old shack lying around the corner. 
daughter went to UCLA Business School realized that they could sell this other places, franchise. So they moved, they franchised, went to San Vicente and Burton Way, and then they, the third one didn't work. But then Westwood, and now it's all over the world. So it's a concept, it's a vision, it's a business plan. An actor has to have a vision, a business plan. So you have to be able to see what it is you want and not just hope you can get in line and somebody will invite you to their party. Your career is what you create, not what somebody offers. You're sitting here thinking, movies. Yes. Major television shows and productions. Yes. Broadway. Yes. And in that hierarchy, tropes were at the bottom. Yes. So you think that's, that's, that's bottom feet. Right. And now remember, now this is the, when, when she suggested to me, you know, I've been in, I started in 1969, so those early years, there were no oases out there mm-hmm. for actors who happened to be black. Yeah, there, were, there were no Hulu, there were no Netflix, there's no streaming services, ain't no black production companies, no. significant numbers, no. there's none of that. No. No, Melvin Van People started that whole thing. Right. This, this is one year removed from the Turner Commission for the Race Riot. Yes, exactly. So therefore, so therefore, what I saw for myself didn't exist. But my representative needs to see what I saw for right. myself and go for that and not go for the low-hanging fruit. Which is the soap. Which was the soap. So she in can't LA, go try and you can be fired. It, particularly in L.A. In New York, they understand right. You could do a Broadway show at, the, at night and do soaps in the daytime. Right. They understand that. L.A., don't have, they don't understand that. So right? you said, boo, this is for me. Absolutely. And what happened? I went and got me another agent. And then I started doing my career. And then, you know, stuff happened, man. I, I started working. And I started my own film. And, and, and things started to happen. And then... Uh, and then in 1991, we had an actor strike. So the whole year, nobody was working. Mm-hmm. So it was like, then they, all my children came to me. You know, they wanted to offer me the part. And guess what? Maybe I could go through all my children for like two years, um, get on there, become the hot, you know, me and Erica came star mm-hmm. of the thing, get in a relationship with her, then I leave the show and I can take that large audience right. back to nighttime and, and film, right? Right. Well, didn't happen that way. But what did happen was, after the first day shooting in New York, I'm on the street. People walking down the street. Hey, my man from all my children. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, you know, I mean, instant. Right. And it was like, damn, soaps, man. Because what I didn't realize is that soaps is basically an institution. Yes. Grandmothers and people sat home. Athletes. You know that Charles Barkley was 10 minutes late for a game because of Watson. <laughs> no, but it, it, I mean, man, look, black, black folks were serious about things. About them soaps. They were serious about them stories. They right. Them stories. They were called, we call them stories. They officially called them soaps. They did. For black folks. And then you met some, look, you had to like run down to your grandmother or the, hey, this is what happened. My, my mama watched it. Right. And when we 
number one station in the East was KCRK. Right. So it was Wise Hope. Right. Uh, All my children. Right. One life to live. Yeah. General Hospital. General Hospital. We didn't watch. Now the other black people, they were all about God, life, young and the rest. Right.
that is going to cause the least amount of rustle. Right. So that's going to keep them out of their focus and the limelight so they shut it down or shut up or they won't speak on it. Or they, they, won't they, won't do, they won't do the go along to get along. They go along to get along. As opposed to say, no, this is my view. I am firm. I have researched it. This is my... And, and it, it is sound, it is just, it's not crazy, it's not deranged, right. not, and if you want to base me on it, let's go toe-to-toe. Sure. Oh, yeah, there, there, are, there are a lot of people who cho- choose that an easy way out. Sure. Because I get it. Oh, man, because you went hard on that. Yeah. I mean, I was literally, before we even sat down, there was a video that was going around, uh, a fight broke out at the Pittsburgh Steelers game. Right. And I posted, I said, I do not understand adults who fight. Because a white woman is with a black guy, she's a, she's yelling and cussing at another black guy, then she touches him or something. All of a sudden, he responds, punches her, gets into a fight, a man gets involved, this whole thing escalates. So I, I put this up there. Oh, and all these people attacking me. Man, you side with the white woman. I said, it's not really what I said. I don't understand adult people fight. I said, I said, y'all ain't even critical thinking. I said, first of all, she, based upon me, started this whole deal. Her man should have intervened and said, baby, I need you to chill. One, we don't know who this fool is. We don't know what he's doing, what he had, what he took for us. Mm-hmm. I said, it's called de-escalation. Mm-hmm. I said, then, I said, so y'all all, man, he had to defend himself. I said, true. I said, why didn't you think that thing through? Mm-hmm. I said, now we might get a criminal charges filed. Mm-hmm. Now we might have a civil suit filed. When it could have been, you a fool. Security. Mm-hmm. I said, so y'all are sitting here mad at me, said, oh, you signed with the white woman. I said, no, you're not thinking through mm-hmm. what might. Mm-hmm. I said, so altercation, a verbal disagreement, mm-hmm. a bump, mm-hmm. a stepping on my shoe. Man, what the hell wrong with you? All of that then escalates in you, then back, then you, and now somebody might end up beaten up, stabbed, shot, dead. Absolutely. Because of a simple thing to grown folks. I said, that's what y'all not thinking. Right, exactly. I said, you've got to to play that thing through. Now, if I do this, 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 this. Right. A lot of people don't do that in their careers, in their marriages, in their relationships. Yeah. They don't play that thing through. Yeah. They just only see it yeah. in the moment we're in. Hey, look, you know, one of the things that has been a real savior to me in terms of my life, in terms of what I get engaged in or what I allow myself to be affected by is uh, the alcoholic's prayer. Um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to make a difference. I can't change you. I can change me. Mm-hmm. I can change the way that I react to things. Mm-hmm. And I got to understand the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I don't get caught up in the things that, you know, it's like I was talking to a friend. They got drama, 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 and it's like, you know, it's sort of like, 
as a teacher, the one thing that I have learned is the fact that uh, the, the the fact that that um, you know a psychiatrist cannot internalize. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, after two patients, they got to quit. Absolutely, they got to shut it down for the day. You have to be able to horseshoe. Information comes in and you put the responsibility back where it goes. So it's in terms of, I completely understand. So what are you going to do about that? So how do you feel about that? So what do you think the answer is? Rather than sympathizing. It's empathy versus sympathy. Empathizing is understanding it so that you can relate. Sympathy is duplicating it, taking it in, and I get right to the same level with you and experience those same emotions with you, which helps you to get even sicker. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so it's for me, because what's true for me is true for me, that I have to understand that which I can do something about and that which I can't. And that which I can't, you know, I can try to support you asking mm -hmm. the next question to help you deal with it. Mm -hmm. Because that problem didn't just start right. a moment ago. Right. That's got history. Right. If it's hysterical, it's historical. And so deal with that history. Two questions now. First, mention COVID-19. What have you, not what have those gotten, what have you gotten out of does that bring you? Why did you want to do that? I started teaching because my mentor asked me to. Because everybody can't teach. No, everybody cannot teach. And, you know, here's, here's the real key to teaching for me, and this is the joy I get out of it. Marie Montessori, Montessori schools all over the world, Marie, uh, you know, Dr. Montessori's uh, concept was that it's a teacher's job to provide a place where growth can occur. And the job of a teacher is to pull things out and not to put things in. So, my interest is in terms of finding the magic and the joy that exists in each one of us and to help to pull that out. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I see that happen, like for instance, there's one young lady in, that's a mentee. Um, her, her name is Naira Francis. When she came into the program, she was 12. And she was reading on a second grade level. And she had kind of a lift. I put a cork in her mouth to have her work on strengthening the muscles in her mouth twice a day, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. Um, I encouraged her to write. She's now an accomplished poet. She's an accomplished uh, creator. She's an accomplished filmmaker. She's a bright, powerful leader 
of a person. And to be able to see that and to be able to know, to know that, that, you know, that, that I, was, I was able to pull that out of her, um, there's no greater joy in the world. That, that is a, a, a blessing that, um, that gives me fuel to continue to do that. Final question. So, you've done a lot. Relax, travel with the wife, go to events. What do you still want to do with this? What do you, is there something that you have not done that you think, I want to do that? I think the, you know, I know that the thing that I'm most interested in moving our culture forward. And whatever form that takes, right now it's through our foundation where we're helping communities and helping people. We're trying to build an online, building a station where we can put our stuff up so that we have more of a global reach with the concept of 100 asses in the seat and 10,000 eyeballs on it. I want to help uh, the culture of our children with the state of affairs of what's going on in this country and the economic future, fiscal literacy, the importance of that. We look at global warming, preparing our children and grandchildren to be able to survive. I can't afford to, to just go. I would love to be able to go and play golf every day. That would be great for me and the rest of my life. But I want my children to have a place that uh, they can take advantage of. I don't want them to, if you look at, there's a, there's a film called Soylent Green. You ever see it? Mm -hmm. Check it out. It, it was shot in the 60s, and it was about the effect of, ultimately, they didn't call it global warming, but the effect of a, of a, of a planet that has gone wrong. And it takes place in 2022. Now, this was shot in the 60s. Mm. So 2022 was like right. way in right. the future. Well, here we are. And there it's coming. Right. Water is drying up. We're in a crisis that right now we don't feel. In 50 years, it's going to be a whole other world. I don't want to leave my children and say, well, what did you do? So I want to move the culture forward. And that's the most important thing that I can do. And the rest of my good years, because i got a lot of good years left, God willing, that, um, that I want to continue to do. Well, you don't have to play golf every day to do this important work you do. I just built, I'm going to show you when we can do it. I just built me a golf simulator. Oh, bro. I'll show it to you. I'm a golfer. Hey, look. I, in my house, I am now able get in this golf simulator, and I swear to God, it's like, oh, Josh, hey, <laughs> I got 350 golf clubs and three fitted. Hey, so, we got to play. Any, any time, look, you know what I'm saying? I don't need, like, you know, six months, three months. If we in the same city, I'll just need 30-minute notice. 
I've canceled many a meeting. That's what I'm trying to avoid. And, and my no 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 because because and my wife knows. She knows how I feel about golf. Yeah. She knows. Yeah. It's like look, I married eighteen holes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.